0: God, thank you for the privilege to proclaim that truth together. Thank you for the word that testifies to this truth. Thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ that solidifies this truth that you are great. I pray that this would resonate deeply with us as we continue to worship together today, but also through the week when we go with our families and spend the rest of the week worshiping with them. And in our places of work, may it resonate deeply with us that our God is great, greatly to be praised. His son died in our place, on our behalf, and was raised to life to prove your power over death. And we've been given a spirit that raised him from the dead to then live in boldness and walk in newness of life. So help us to let these things ring long in our ears. We love you and are grateful that you have loved us first. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bella and Stacia, for singing that with us, for us this morning. Remember that word, you are for us, not against us. You're going to need that in Hebrews 6 this morning. Well, welcome to Grace Community Church. It's been said two or three times already. If you're brand new to Grace, if you're a student, if you're in the neighborhood just moving here, if you have been here for a long time but you're just now checking out Grace, you want to learn more about it, stay for our uh, Discovery Lunch after the service. And we also want some people to help us tear this area down and set it up, get ready just as soon as we can, quickly as we can. We're going to have some pizza, and, and and one of the things that we'll be just encouraging you to consider strongly is home group. Really, if all you see of Grace Community Church is what you see on Sunday morning, that's not, that's only a portion of it. It's really only about half of it. Now, you've got two halves, and then a whole lot more extra ministry. But we consider home group just as important as Sunday morning. So, you'll get to meet some of those leaders and other leaders we can get you connected with. Um, there are home groups that meet from from Dunn to North Fuquay, way on up toward uh, Apex and Cary, almost. So stick around for a discovery lunch. We would love to have you join us for that. Well, last week I was so glad that we were able to meet, and as we talked about then, it's a beautiful on the way into church last week with all the ice. Let me ask you, did you get out and about on Friday and Saturday during that ice storm? If you did, it was in the face of every warning imaginable. I mean, the governor told you, do not go to the NC State Duke game. And, and uh, like anybody would want to go to the NC State Duke, being, <laughs> being a Carolina fan. Well, if you're a Duke fan, at least you would get a chance to see them win this year if you went to that game. Uh, well. Okay, uh, we're trying to thin out the crowds. It's a little full in here. So, Anyway, the governor said, don't get out. Look, our little neighborhood uh, newsletter said, don't dare get out. Every warning and imaginable. And, and look, we understand. Ice is a different beast. People up north don't understand that. You know, they talk about southerners don't know how to ride, drive in the sun. Well, look, if you have to drive on ice, Washington, D.C. found out what we found out several years ago. When you get one inch laid down quickly and they don't have time to mess with the roads. It's a mess. It's a mess. And ice is that way. So... Um, I, I lived in the North Carolina, Mount, North Carolina mountains for 20 plus years. And look, I got everywhere in the snow. I stayed in during the ice, everywhere except that last little dirt road up to my house. I couldn't get up sometimes. And one time it was like 17 days in a row we couldn't get up there. It was so, we had so much snow. But look, I could get anywhere in the mountains because my little Subaru, front wheel drive Subaru, would go anywhere unless the snow just was so deep that it couldn't plow through. But there's a... I was confident in in the snow. But you know what? There's a difference in confidence and (laughs) overconfidence. Look, I'm not nearly as confident as I was back in those days driving in the snow. And of course, part of it is everybody else who's driving. Uh, But... But we're all in trouble if someone is overconfident in snow and ice. There's a, there's a very thin, thin... It's going to be one of those mornings, I can tell. And this is a bad morning, Hebrews 6. It's a very thin line between confidence and overconfidence. Alan Box used to work with explosives in the military. You know, there's a fine line between confidence and overconfidence when you're dismantling bombs. Or if you're driving an 18-wheeler... Or if you're a surfer, or if you're a nuclear engineer, any, any number of professions or activities, you better be sure that you're confident, but not overconfident. What about warnings in the Bible? I mean, what if the Bible boldly claims that the decisions that you make will have life and death and eternal consequences? And it warns you against certain types of decisions saying that you will not be with God in eternity if you make these decisions. Perhaps scripture is more like handling explosive devices or an 18-wheeler or a jet than it is like feeding the birds. Now I've made all the bird watchers and feeders upset. But you understand the difference, don't you? Perhaps the danger for us who are fairly comfortable with Scripture is that we become overconfident in our approach to life and eternity. Our text today is Hebrews 6, 1 through 12. One of the commentaries that I read acknowledged the difficulty in this section, saying, look, I am aware that many of you came straight to this text to see what I had to say about it before you started at the beginning. You wanted to know what I had to say about Hebrews 6, particularly verses 4 through 6. This is a difficult passage, and while I used to think that the interpretation was fairly simple, I don't think that any longer. I mean, there's no doubt that I entered this preparation for this message with a full confidence that when God saves a person, there's nothing that that person can do to change his or her eternal destiny. And I end the message with the same belief. If you come into this message saying that, yes, you can give away what God has given to you, then you're probably going to come to a different conclusion than I did. But I want to tell you, regardless of what you believe, you've got problems with this text. It's just not easy to understand completely what God is saying. So we're going to do our best to just get at it and, and, and try to understand the things that we all agree on and see what God is saying to every single one of us. So, we've already covered uh, the first part of this section, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. This morning we're going to conclude by examining Hebrews 6, 1 to 12. But, but this, this, this ought to be our desire every single time we come to church. It's not that we're going to examine the word, but we're going to let the word examine us. Our hearts and our minds And see where it is that God is speaking to us. What he is trying to say. I want your attention. You need to hear me on this. And believe. As is our custom, I will ask you to stand for the reading of scripture. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Hebrews 12 verses, or excuse me, Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened For the land or for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things Father, uh, we want to be those who persevere to the end. We recognize that our only hope is in believing the gospel and that knowing that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But Lord, in our assurance Of the salvation that you have worked into our lives. May we not be slack nor overconfident. But understand this severe warning. To be a means of grace. A way that you help. To keep us. Focused on Jesus and attached to you. Lord open our eyes our hearts. And fill them with your word. And draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Do you remember when you learned your ABCs? I'm not sure that I remember the exact time. I, I bet you remember how, though, that you learned your ABCs. You remember that, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We all know the song. And if you have children under the age of 10, maybe under the age of 15, I am all but certain there's video somewhere of your children learning their ABCs. We just think it's so cute. But let me ask you something. Those of you, several of you will be taking your medical boards this summer. What if you secured an oral exam rather than a written exam? And you stood before the panel and you said, I got a little something I'd like to share with you. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You may be surprised to realize it's not as cute in that setting as it was, you know, when you were like three years old, four years old. And your parents were saying, good job, good job. I'm so proud of you, honey. Here's a question for you. Do you still use your ABCs? You do. But in a far more sophisticated manner than you did when you were four or five years old. When you were first learning the alphabet. Now you know how to use the alphabet to, to, to pr- produce so many words and ideas. You can do so much more than you did in the first days when you first learn them. So you understand what the author is saying here in the beginning of chapter 6. He's he's not expecting his friends to forget about the elementary doctrines surrounding conversion, but to employ those doctrines to go deeper, far deeper into the gospel and have far greater understanding and benefit of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Ironically, there is some question about these elementary doctrines that the that the author of hebrews says let's move on from them well let me first understand what they are then we can <clears throat> possibly move on and although there are differing opinions about the specific meaning of each you're going to notice that there are three pairs of focus repentance from dead works and faith so repentance and faith is one set then instruction about washings or baptism it's not there, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Laying on of hands. And then the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So three pairs <clears throat> of doctrines. Um, the, the first set of instructions. Repentance from dead works and faith occur at the very first moment of salvation. Repentance from dead works may or very likely is repentance from works that you are depending on to make you right with God. In other words... I just need to be a good enough person so that when I get there, my good works outweigh my bad. That's probably what he's talking about. Although it very likely he could also be talking. And so often the the, the writers of Scripture have more than one meaning when they write. This could also be uh, repentance from works that produce death, as the NIV translates it. A very. Carefully so, in other words, idolatrous acts and just sinful, wicked living. Repent from your works, your dead works, and then have faith in God. Repentance and faith occur at the very first moment of salvation. So we are born again when we repent of our sin and when we believe that Jesus died in our place and that His death and His blood is acceptable in the Lord's sight. Is payment for our sins. The next set of elementary doctrines includes baptism and the laying on the hands. Laying on of hands. Now baptism <clears throat> here in the Greek is is in the plural. It's baptismoi. Baptismoi. Baptizo is the word for is the is the um, uh, the verb for baptized. But baptism baptismas is the word for baptism. Baptismoi is baptisms. And that's exactly what is written here. So consequently, it's translated in the ESV as washings. Other places, uh, ceremonial washings or rite, ritual kind of washings. Um, Decent chance that what the author is doing by using the plural is trying to distinguish between the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament that people had to follow the law just exactly right in order to stand in God's presence and baptism which the scripture says washes away our sins it's an outward act of an inward faith that we have it's an expression of our obedience to the Lord it's also God's way of bringing about this awesome union that we have baptism apart from faith means nothing Faith without baptism. Well, what is that? That's what the New Testament writers would say. Really? You've believed, but you've never been baptized. Really? Truly? <clears throat> Which, by the way, is a good word. If you have never been baptized, talk to me. Let's let's make sure that you're following the Lord. In this way, so he's saying, "Move on from these instructions about baptisms and the laying on of hands, which could be any number of things, but most likely is associated with a a, a baptism and an initial initiation into the Christian faith is kind of like, I, we now bring you into this family, and then there's baptism." Um, also then the next set <clears throat> is the resurrection of the dead." And eternal judgment, excuse me. Look, both of these have to do with the end times. And both of them brought a great deal of satisfaction and peace and comfort. To those who were first hearing these words. If you're just getting here and you don't know the context for all of Hebrews. Most likely this was a small group of Jewish believers In Rome that were receiving this word just before or just after persecution had begun in earnest uh, in the first century. And so it was great to think that if next week they put me on a cross or if next week I am burned at the stake or I am thrown to the lions that I am going to be resurrected. There's a promise in the resurrection of the dead. But there's also a promise in eternal judgment. In this life, we cry out, "Lord," with Paul in Romans, Romans nine and Romans ten. Both, I would sacrifice myself. I would spend eternity in hell if you would let my brothers and sisters come to you. And then, and then when we are in heaven and we have got that eternal perspective, we'll be crying out, how long, O oh Lord, before you make things right and you judge these evil, wicked people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can't even imagine that kind of a thought now because our hearts are so tender and so desirous that everyone come to Christ. But you know what? It would mean something to us if we were about to die for our faith to be reminded that God's going to make everything right one day. It's not always going to be like it is upside down. When, when Jesus comes back and when he reigns fully, everything will be right. One of the benefits of going deeper into the word for the first century readers and for those of us who are reading these words 2,000, some 2,000 years later is that it gets our focus, gets the focus off of ourselves and on to Jesus. <clears throat> what happens when you have a major crisis in your life? You become so inwardly focused, don't you? I mean, it's just, that's the way we are. We tend to be, it's just like, oh, I can, I can hardly move, I'm paralyzed, Some of the first ones hearing these words were thinking about walking away from Jesus. And some of you who are hearing these words today may be thinking about walking away from Jesus. In the first century they were thinking about walking away because of persecution. And notice they weren't thinking about walking away from religion. They were thinking about walking towards it. They weren't walking away from the church. They were just walking away from Jesus. And you may be thinking about simply adjusting your beliefs to be more in step with the culture. Or you may be thinking about walking away to indulge a particular sin. Message message is the same today as it was in that day. Don't do it! You are playing with eternal damnation. It's a strong word in Hebrews 6. Well, see, that's the point. You evangelicals are so exclusive, so absolute in your thing. Respectfully, and I I mean that truly, respectfully. It's not me, it's not us, it's the Word. Wow, that, boy, there's a lot to absorb here. (laughs) The writer seems to be saying that if the person that he's talking about falls away into apostasy or into a state of absolute and total rejection of orthodox belief, everything that I once believed, I now reject. Or I have sufficiently muddied the waters in such a way that it's something completely different than what I used to believe then if that person has rejected the orthodox belief, has rejected Jesus at that belief, he cannot be restored. So I used to have this all figured out. It was very simple to me. It's like, oh, well, hey, this is just a hypothetical. If a person could lose his salvation, then he couldn't be saved again. So, of course, it's not possible. I was guilty of a rather simplistic approach to interpreting Scripture, but I might add, it seemed to me, and it may seem to you, you may have never thought about it beyond that. It made perfect sense to me. It was logical. And I'm not in any way criticizing you for taking that kind of a view on this text. I'm just saying, let's think about it at a deeper level as we are encouraged, even, even commanded, To do, Listen, there are at least six possible views, at least six very strong views about what this means. But beyond the hypothetical view, most of us are going to fall into one of two categories. Either this is a person who appeared to be saved, gave all evidence of being saved, but he really wasn't and so in the end it showed. Or it was a person who truly was saved. And he turned his back on Jesus and walked away. This text seems to say though, if he's walked away from Jesus, it's impossible for him to ever be restored to the place he was. So what are we to make of all this? Here's something we can all agree. This is, first of all, a serious warning. Severe, in fact. And also the person in question has all the appearances a being saved. He has been enlightened. He's tasted the heavenly gift. He's shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted the How in the world? This, for all the world, this appears to be someone who is a believer. And we can all agree with that. Furthermore, the decision to walk away from Jesus is at the level that it's so extreme that there's no room for repentance and restoration to the Lord. Recently in our study of of, of hebrews we we acknowledged how important context is, not just the verses before and after a passage, not even just that particular book which is really important um look here's one of the here's one of the places where word studies are helpful, but they run into a a, a bit of a a box when you say oh this is what this word means and it's always important to understand how a particular author is using a word they don't all use the same words in the same ways Greek was a very expansive language it was very generous and so a lot of meanings for the, for the different words and sometimes this author is using it a little differently than this author but even beyond that what does scripture say overall and in this case about salvation my clear understanding of Scripture is that it teaches that salvation is a work of God, and when He does a work, it's permanent. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our eternal uh, salvation, or the guarantee of our eternal Possession, And the Greek word used there for guarantee has the connotation of a non-refundable down payment. That's why it's called the earnest of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is called the earnest of our salvation in uh, the King James. You know what earnest money is, don't you? When you make a down payment on a piece of property. and You say, here's $1,000 in good faith that I'm going to buy that property. What happens if you change your mind about purchasing that property? You lose that money, right? You don't get it back. So when God gives the Holy Spirit, it's a non-refundable guarantee that we will go to heaven. Another reason for concluding that the person who walked away was never a genuine believer is because of the implication associated with the opposite view. Opposite view. Indeed if this person did walk away, he could never come back. And I think most people who believe that you can lose your salvation believe that you can get it back if you repent and believe all over again. If the person in Hebrews 6 was a true believer and fell away, there was no hope for returning to Jesus. Look, we all know that people play at church. Sometimes they're in and out of church. And then one day... The gospel takes root, and there is a dramatic change. It, it appears that the writer of Hebrews was referring to someone who was, who was not only guilty of, uh, of apostasy, of rejecting what he had once <coughs> claimed to believe, but it was at such a level that this person had joined in the mockery of the cross of Christ and very likely into uh, the, the cry to persecute Christians. Look, I used to be one of them. I know how dangerous it is. It's so easy. <clears throat> is it not to get on whatever popular thought is out there today? Let me ask, just encourage you younger ones. Just just, just say this. I'm not going to say don't. I'm just going to tell you it's easy to look like a fool in the long run by jumping on something that's going around on Twitter or Facebook or Whatever is going on now. Instagram and way more than I don't know about anymore. David says, you need to be doing this. I'm like, "Uh, what? I'm still trying to get, you know, this other thing going. So, you know why? Because it's easy. It's easy to cry out. Messiah, Jesus, Lord in the highest on Sunday and on Thursday and Friday be crying out, crucify Him. And that's kind of the implication of the person here. This is a serious rejection of the gospel. Do verses uh, 7 and 8 remind you of anything? It's not exactly the same as Matthew 13, but that agricultural Uh, analogy about those who are true believers and those who, who are not. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. You remember the parable of the sower from Matthew 13. In this parable, a man scatters seed. The seed that lands on the rock or on the path, I mean, just is snatched up by the birds, signifying that that when the gospel falls on some heart, Satan takes it away before it can take any root whatsoever, before it can produce anything. It's still in seed form, and it's just gone. Nothing. Then there is the seed that lands... uh, of amongst the rocky ground that sprouts quickly but then is withered in the sun because it has no roots. The same as those who believe but when troubles or persecution come they fall away very quickly. The seed that fell into thorns and weeds began to grow but it was choked out by the weeds just as those who give assent to the gospel and then are distracted by the riches and the cares of this life. And we are so much more prone to that, I think, than any of us know. Only the seed, only the seed that fell on good ground produced lasting fruit. I used to think, well, three of these categories that Jesus is referring to are believers and one is lost. But I think there's really strong evidence for believing the other way that three are lost and one is saved and if you if that somehow tempts you to arrogance I think you're, we're just missing the whole point if we think look we're the only ones that have it you' better be oh Lord thank you well, it's like you're on a bus and 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 then there're three other buses beside you and all four of you are going and there's a cliff out there and your bus peels off and the other three go on. I doubt you're going to be saying, well, how fair is that? Why am I on this bus? You better be saying, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you put me on this bus. Why did we deserve to live? That's where we'll struggle with is the guilt. You know, how is it that You chose me. So should we approach this text. Hebrews 4, 6 through 8. Or 4 through 8. As well. I'm glad that I'm a true believer. I surely hope so and so is listening. Uh, No. You remember Ricky's message from 2 Peter 1. The first Sunday of this year. Give every effort. Confirm that your calling and election are sure. In other words, plan to walk with Jesus for the rest of your life. And don't play around with sin along the way. If you're tempted to walk away from Jesus, don't. Look, in our day, you can go from one gospel-believing church to another gospel-preaching church just like that. You couldn't do it in the first day. You walked away from the gospel believing church you were in, then you had walked away from the gospel believing church. But look, it's far too easy for us to move around now. Make sure if you leave a gospel preaching church that you re- leave for gospel reasons. Not all the little things Because we start to think about, this is my decision. I'm going to plant where I want to plant. Look, we hope the Lord plants you here. It will be God planting you. The conclusion of this warning passage follows the pattern that runs all the way through this letter. Stern warning, followed by serious encouragement. Look at verses 9 to 12. They will require very little explanation. Though we speak in this way, in this very harsh manner that we've spoken in, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that is, you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance of hope. That, that phrase keeps popping up in Hebrews. So that you may not be sluggish. Or remember that from Hebrews 5.11. Sluggish this whole section. But imitators of those who through faith and patience... Inherit the promise. Don't let up. Don't be sluggish or lazy in your pursuit of truth. And do not be weak in your stand for the truth. Keep your eyes on the cross and on Jesus. I believe in you, the writer says. You keep up the good work. You can do this. And to keep up the good work means to keep believing in Jesus. Well, as we close, let's make three points of application. First, it is a serious thing to neglect the study of God's Word. It would be hard to absorb Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3 and take the position that what you know about Scripture right now is pretty much all you need to know. I mean, if you knew someone facing intense persecution, how would you encourage them? Or someone who's going through a major crisis in life? How do you encourage them? I doubt you'd say, you know, you should probably know more about Melchizedek. But that's exactly what the author is saying. And again, we've already talked. Get the focus off yourself. Get it into the Word and into Jesus. That's what the author not only recommended, he commanded that we know more about Melchizedek. Dorothy Sayers said it's impossible for the believer to ignore theology for long because life drives us to the Word to see how God addresses our intellectual and personal challenges. And here's the thing if you go to the Word, if if you have all kinds of struggles, intellectual, personal struggles, and, and, and you walk away from Jesus, or if you go to the Word, it indicates something about your relationship with the Lord. When you engage the outside world with the gospel, it is important that you know God's word well enough to interact meaningfully with those who do not know the Lord. And by the way, don't confuse. Talk about your struggles or your your inspection of the word. Don't confuse rejecting Jesus with questions about this or that part and different interpretations of scripture here and there. There's a big difference in that. But think about what you know and represent the Lord to the world. And frankly, there is way more in the New Testament about be ready when somebody asks you about your faith to share it than it is about get out there and go. Great commission is all we need. I am not saying that the Bible does not tell us to evangelize. It does. But a lot of our evangelism comes when people take notice of you individually and us corporately and ask, what is it? Tell me something about this God that you serve. Make the most of every opportunity, Paul says to those in Colossians. But think about it. You know and represent the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Word of God written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You represent Jesus to the world and you need to know what you're talking about. So what is it that is so important in your life that you don't have time to study Scripture? It's a serious thing to neglect the study of God's Word. Second, never take New Testament warnings lightly. I'm going to confess that when the governor said that everybody should stay off the road last week, I was like, yeah, everybody else. I would appreciate that. Again, it's one thing to be confident. It's another matter altogether to be overconfident. I said that don't take the New Testament warnings lightly. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't take the Old Testament warnings lightly. It's all the same story. Two parts but one story. But in the New Testament, the gospel is clear. And most of the warnings have to do with an abuse of the gospel, even when the issues are behavioral. To live in sin is to make a mockery of Christ's death for sin. To stir disunity in the church is to attack the body of Christ. To preach false doctrine? Well, that gets less patience than anything in the New Testament. Get them out, Paul says, (laughs) quickly. You know why? Because it denies the meaning of the cross. Is it not shocking how easily we apply the truth of Scripture to someone else but not to ourselves? Oh, I wish my co-worker would take the command not to gossip more seriously. Uh, the anger my neighbor shows, oh my god, look, I, I get upset in traffic, but come on, that's just over the top. My friend left the church. I'm glad I'll never walk away from Jesus. You know, instead of thinking about others' failures, let let the Spirit of God examine your heart. Let God's Word do its work in your life. Remember, according to this text, without fruit in our lives, without the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things, and without ministry to the body and to the lost, there is no assurance of salvation. Now salvation exists without fruit in our lives. That's pretty clear from 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul said, I've turned this guy over to Satan for the destruction of the body that his soul might be saved in the day of Jesus. The day of Christ. Lot is an example. Yes, it happens, but it's the exception. And there's no assurance in salvation if you live any way you want to live. And you take it all lightly. When you come to a warning passage, shudder to think that you could walk away from Jesus and suffer the consequences of such a decision. Receive this warning as a means of grace. And pray that God will keep your heart tender and forgiveness for others ready and your mind committed to obedience so that you will never walk away. And how do you do that? By sucking it up and just being a better person? No. I don't know how to explain it, but you do it just by believing the gospel. Just by believing. I am a sinner, but Jesus loves me. He is for me, as we sang about, just before the message. He's the one who is doing this amazing work in my life, but he's put this here for my benefit. To remind me, this is a serious thing. Don't get slack. Don't allow yourself to think, well, I'm okay. So I can live any way I want. I can behave any way I want. I can take a break. Do not forget the elementary truth of the gospel, but go deeper into the gospel, crying out to Jesus as your only hope for persevering to the end. And then last, live out your gratitude for the gospel by serving others in the body. Aren't you grateful for the author's confidence in the people he has just warned to stay close to Jesus? I mean, the words of affirmation in Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12, are deeply encouraging words. In the author's endorsement of the reader's faithfulness, he writes about. Their service to one another. The more the world opposes the message of the church. The gospel that is the gospel. The more important it is that we are connected with one another. And that we serve one another. Doesn't mean we should become or isolated, insular, or isolated from the world. It does mean that God has called us to function as the body of Christ. And the more we so function the more we learn about him. And the more assurance we have in our union with Jesus, or rather, his union with us. Which, in turn, ministers to the world around us. And that's a good place to end on a day when we've received the hard word from Hebrews 6. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, we confess that there are times in our lives that our focus is not on you. It's on uh, troubles. It's on temptations. It's on persecution. It's on things that people have done to us, said about us. It's on the way so and so makes me feel. It's Lord, it's just any number of things. They're all idols that we worship rather than you. And so we pray that you would turn our heart to Jesus and that we could say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have given this word, this severe warning. But at the same time, such a strong endorsement about our faith in you. Lord, it's not so much our faith as it is the object of our faith. But it is faith that saves us. Thank you, Lord, for putting us on that bus that turned away from destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for going over so that we wouldn't have to. Lord, we love you and we need you. And we ask that you would change us and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: At the end of every month, we take a specific offering for the purpose of benevolence. And so in 2015, uh, we as a church family were able to spend over $15,000 to love on our church family and people in our community who had emergency needs, who had power bill problems, who had things come up that we can't plan for. And many of us have been uh, recipients of these funds and are so grateful. We're grateful for our deacons who administer this fund. Who, through the discernment of the Spirit, uh, are led to serve in different ways with different amounts. So we want to pray for our deacons, certainly, as they continue this in 2016. But as this is the last Sunday of January, and we begin 2016, I think it's completely within what God has blessed us with to outdo our giving from last year. Uh, We're already on pace to outspend because there are so many needs. And so as God has given graciously and abundantly to you, please consider on the last Sunday of every month, uh, giving graciously and abundantly uh, for the benefit of the people in sitting next to you, for the church family, and for those who are in our immediate community who have emergency needs. Uh, and so plan on that as we go through the rest of this year on the last Sunday. Hopefully you thought about it as you came this morning. Uh, but let's uh, pray for this particular offering and then sing together. Would you pray with me? God, we have everything that we need for life and for godliness provided to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we have uh, sought first the kingdom of God, we have all seen these other things be added unto us. We have seen the fact that uh, we don't need to worry about what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, particularly here in the States, as you care for us so abundantly. So I pray that from this position of uh, of all of our needs being met, that we would give over and above so that your other people, your other children might be cared for just the same way that we have been. That we might be able to reach out to the rest of our community as well and let those who live around us, who suffer financially, that we might be able to walk with them. And God, I do ask uh, that in Jesus' name that you would help us Uh, to give so hilariously that we would outdo ourselves from last year. So take these funds, Lord, and use them to build your kingdom and provide us a means of sharing the gospel uh, in in a physical form, even as we accompany it with the word for those who are in our church family and those who are outside. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.